message last week, um, and I, I want to go ahead and look at it again this week. And as I, if you remember, I told you last week that we're just going to take um, bits and pieces from this, but try to keep it within the context of, of the whole. I want to go ahead and back up all the way to verse 7 of First John chapter 4 and then read through uh, to uh, probably about verse 4 of chapter 5. So it'll be a little bit of a lengthy reading this morning that I'll, I'll go ahead and read for you. Verse 7 of chapter 4 in First John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. This is the love of God was made. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, as God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. And if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because we have, he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he abides in love, abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not know or does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begat, who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. That's kind of a tongue twister. We're going to kind of look at that a little bit this morning. But this we know that we love the children of God. And when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that we have overcome in the world. Our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So, Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts this morning as we look into this passage and just take a few pieces out of it to, uh, to uh, consider this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might receive from you and fill me with your spirit, that you might speak through me as well. We thank you for your faithful love that you have for us. 
and for your faithful word that instructs us in the ways of righteousness. We pray, Lord, that you would bless your word to our hearts this morning and that we would apply that which we would hear uh, into our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. That's a rather lengthy passage. And you can see that parts of this passage, it, it has a tendency of looping back on previous verses. It, it, it does say um, the same thing or similar things, but he's, it says it in a, in a different fashion. And, and one of the things I wanted to bring out, and I kind of want to land on verse 9 and 10 of chapter 4 this morning and, and perhaps um, tie in just a little bit to chapter 5, verse 1. Because what we have in verse 9 is, is this idea of Jesus being the only begotten Son. What we have in verse 1 of chapter 5 is... Jesus, again, being the only begotten son. So I want to talk a little bit about that word begotten. And particularly in, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, because it goes on to say that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, everyone who loves God, who begot also, that is everyone who loves God who begot us. Is that That's why it's a bit of a tongue twister. So... This is not a reference to Jesus here um, in when it says everyone who is begotten of him. It's a reference to us and everyone who, uh, who loves God, who begot us, that would be a better way to say this actually, also loves him, that is um, the person who is begotten of him. So a bit of a mental tongue twister, but he, he, John is really kind of saying the same thing. If, if, if you love God, you will love the people whom God has begotten. Now, does that make any sense yet? Hopefully that will make a little bit more sense uh, in, in understanding this idea of begotten because I can imagine then some of your thinking, you're thinking of God being, the, Jesus being the only begotten son, and you would be right. However, there's some things here I want to point out in this that are different that maybe will help illuminate and be able to understand this passage a little bit better. Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, um, In this the love of God was made known or manifest to us that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And then it goes on to says, In this love... Verse 10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, first of all, what we see here in, in chapter 4, verse 9, is the, the fact that God demonstrates his love by sending his only begotten son. All right. So, it is the Greek word monogenes, which if you want a spelling on that is in the English, it's M-O-N-O, M-O-N-O, G-E-N-E-S, monogenes. Uh, in, in the Christian Standard Bible, or in the ESV, if you happen to have one of those, uh, it does not translate this, his only begotten son. It translates this, his one and only son, in the Christian Standard Bible. Or in the English Standard Version, it just says, 
his only son, which is actually a better definition than this idea of begotten. Now, part of the reason why they use the word begotten here, because it's a reference to the father, and fathers beget children, while mothers will give birth to children. So there's that differentiation that, that, um, that the Bible or the English translators are trying to make here. Um, but what this word means um, is that it pertains to being the only one of its kind. Now, this is very important, all right? This is very important. Phil, could you, for a second? Thanks, Phil. This word refers to something or someone who is the only one of its kind. Not only the only one of its kind, but the only one within a specific relationship. Are we, are we sons and daughters of God? If we've been born again, yes, we are. John, 1 John even talks about this as well. But when we see in certain passages... I've got to be careful on this because I don't want to mis- mis- uh, misdirect you. When we see in some passages the word begotten, it refers to this word in the Greek monogenes, which means one and only of its kind with a specific relationship. Jesus was, is the one and only of his kind because he is both God and man in one, one person. And he has that specific relationship with God. Follow me so far? Now, can I let the cat out of the bag real quick? Just so, because I, 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 I'm, I'm almost afraid that I'm already starting to confuse you by referring back to 1 John chapter 5. Um, because where it says in 1 John chapter 5 verse 1, uh, who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him, referring not to Jesus but to his followers. That word begotten, by the way, is a different Greek word, which in my opinion, if I can take issue with, with, the, with the New King James, that that's not a great translation uh, because it is a different Greek word referring just to those uh, who are the offspring many offspring. It's the Greek word geneo, G-E-N-N-A-O. Um, so it's a different word. It is a different concept, even though for whatever reason, and, and please don't ask me to get into the minds of the translators because I have no idea why they translated this word in First John chapter 5 begotten as well when it does not refer to Jesus but it does refer to Christians why they went with the same word beats me um, other translations don't use that same the word begotten when it refers to God's children being uh, referring to us so this word begotten monogenes in in chapter 4 verse 9 refers to one of its kind with a specific relationship to God the Father, the one and only. Uh, it is used also in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. We won't bother to go there, but it's a reference to Isaac being the one unique son of Abraham, even though Isaac had more than one son. But Isaac 
even though Abraham more than, had more than one son. Did I say Isaac? Okay. Uh, Abraham had more than one son, but what was unique about Isaac? He was the son of the promise. He was the son of the promise. Uh, and he was unique in that way. Jesus being God the Son, and I'm going to unpack this for you a little bit more. Jesus being God the Son has that unique relationship with God the Father. Okay. Now, when we start using this term begotten, we, it, it almost implies that, that, that the Father produced or created the Son. Now, that would be some normal thinking. That is not true. Are we okay, Ken? All right, I'm good. I almost scared you for a second, didn't I? No, I know you know I'm, I'm good with this. Um, Jesus is co-eternal with the Father. It wasn't that God the Father was lonely, so he thought he would make Jesus and the Holy Spirit later. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit are co-eternal, co-existent from all the way into eternity past. Now, how far, how long ago was that? I have no idea. Eternity past. That blows my mind. I don't get it. Okay. However, in the early church, they began to argue and have different views about who Jesus was and what his relationship to the Father was. So, it took a few years, actually right around 325, when there was a council in Nicaea and they developed what is called the Nicene Creed. Well, some of you are familiar with this. Some of you may not have ever heard this term before. But the Nicene Council came together because they were opposing the teaching of a man named Arius, A-R-I-U-S. Arius was from Alexander, and he taught that Jesus was neither eternal nor was he divine, but he had been created by God the Father before the world was made, and then he made the world. Now, there's, there's a uh, category for that thinking. It's called, it's called heresy. All right? That's, that was a heretical teaching. Um, there are a few groups who teach that today. Um, I would refer to them as heretics. All right? This, that's not sound... Biblical doctrine. But they came together in Nicaea and through what was called the Nicene Council and they, they hammered this idea out. Incidentally, the Nicene Council in, in, in so many times, particularly among evangelicals, Constantine gets a very bad name. It was Constantine that called the Nicene Council together. This is just extra. Okay. Um, now, he probably did it for political reasons. Because the church had been legalized and they were, they were infighting about their doctrine. So we thought, I need to get some unity here. Uh, nonetheless, it was really funny because they, the church allowed him to attend. But he had to kind of sit up toward the front but not say a word. Uh, and and they, they, actually, they actually specified that with Constantine. You can attend. You can sit up front. We'll look at you. But be quiet. All right? Don't say a word. And he held to that, actually. And so, part of the Nicene Creed, now, the creeds are nothing more than statements of faith. And they are based on the Bible. I've I've argued with people, well, yes, I've argued with people over this because I'm not going to use a creed because the creed's not the Bible. 
but then they will turn around and write a statement of faith, which is not the Bible. Does that make any sense? Okay, I'm, I'm not the only one crazy in the room then. Okay, I'm, we're good. But, but he, they didn't want to use the creed because the creed is not the Bible. The creed is based upon intensive study of the Bible. And it is, as Al Moyer, who is president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, referred to the creeds, particularly the Apostles' Creed, he refers to it as an elevator speech. Do you know what an elevator speech is? Is when you get in, let's say if you're going up to the top of a very tall building and you have the time from, from, from the time it takes that elevator to get from the bottom floor to the top floor to articulate the gospel, that would be considered an elevator speech because by the time you get to the top floor and that door is open, your audience is gone. And I, I think it's a good concept to consider because everybody is so ADD today. You know, and, and people have the, attentions, the attention span of a gnat, it seems. And, and, you, and so you've got to get people's attention and articulate the gospel to them. And you, if you don't know where it is, you can't just fumble around because who knows? Now you're on the 10th floor, the 11th floor, then you're going to get off on the 13th floor and you've blown your opportunity. So what they did was they developed, now of course there were not elevators in those days, and I understand this, but I understand the concept here. They developed a, a, a codified statement of faith that were, was known as the creeds. Um, the Nicene Creed was the product that came out of the Nicene Council in 325 AD. Now, one of the, I just have a little bit here, I'm just going to read it to you, not a whole lot. But one of the things that they said about Jesus Christ is that he is very God of God. Very God of God. Begotten, not made. So they use this term, begotten, not made. But they use the term monogenes, not the word geneo. They don't refer to Jesus as someone who had been um, conceived by the Father. But he is begotten not made of one substance of the... This is really important. They fought over this word, by the way. Of one substance of the Father. The Son and the Father are of one substance. Uh, it, it comes from the Greek word homoousios, um, which, which refers... Basically, they're out of the same... Um, how do I say this without sounding almost... Um, almost disrespectful or sacrilegious, but just as the example, they came out of the same piece of matter. Does that make sense? I want to say lump of clay, but when we're talking about God, that doesn't, that doesn't equate, does it? But they, they came out of the same substance, right? It's like these chairs, when they actually built these chairs, they had this big, long bolt. Now, I didn't see this, but they had this big, long bolt of fabric, and it was one roll of fabric, and that fabric... Uh, all these chairs are of the one substance because they came out of the same bolt. Does that make sense? That may be a little bit better. Okay. Co-equal. Very God of very God. And then Christ became man uh, and the fullness of God who was pleased to dwell in Christ Jesus. Col- uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, which I refer, I just give you a quick somewhat of an overview of what that verse refers to. So, according to the Nicene Creed, that Jesus is 
begotten, but he's not made. Now, the interesting thing about this idea of Jesus being begotten is when was, when was Jesus begotten? Psalm 2, real quick, let's take a quick look. I think it's verse 7. Psalm 2, verse 7. It's right after Psalm 1. Okay. Psalm is right after Job, right before Proverbs. Okay, sounds like everybody's there. Um, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, which is a vague reference to Daniel chapter 7, by the way, and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you will break them with a rod of iron and you will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, does that sound future? Does that sound future? It should sound future to you because it is future. Because I was going to ask the question, when, was, when, when did this begottenness take place? When did it take place? Was it before this was written? Or was this a prophetic utterance about something that was going to happen with the Messiah? Turn to Acts 13. Right around verse 33. I'm looking to see if I want to back up a few verses. Okay. Yeah, I do. Sorry, Phil. I guess 28. All right. Uh, Although this is a good sermon by Paul, and I would encourage you to read the whole thing later. Uh, And though they found no cause for death in him. Now, this is obviously a reference to whom? To Jesus. Although they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all things that were written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up. God raised him from the dead. Verse 30 is important. Okay, in the context, particularly in the context of what we're going to read in verse 33. God raised him from the dead. And we have seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad news or glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God, okay, that promise which God has made to the fathers, follow this, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus Okay, second reference to the resurrection. As it is also written in the second Psalm. Today you are my son, or excuse me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And, he ra- and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. Okay, I'm going to stop there at that part of 34. This prophetic... Utterance in Psalm chapter 2 referring to the father 
begottening the son was something that happened not at the son's origin because the son's origin goes into eternity past consistent with the origin of the, and I even hate to use these terms because God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they are co-eternal. So there is no origin. So what Paul is telling us here in Acts chapter 13 is that this idea of the Father begotten the, the Son happened at the resurrection. So God is using a term of begottening when Jesus was raised from the dead. In other words, Jesus was already in existence before, obviously, he was in the grave. But the begottening of the Son happened at the resurrection, not at the beginning of the Son's origin, because the Son, being eternal, has no origin. Does that make sense? All right? That's real important because there, there's this idea, again, um, that Jesus is not equal with the Father, that Jesus was created by the Father before the world began. And then uh, as Jesus grew up, then the Father gave him the opportunity to create the heavens and the earth. And that's not true. Larry's is shaking his head, right? He knows. That's not true. So, Back to 1 John 4, verse 9. When God sent his only begotten, when God sent his only begotten, when John chapter 3, verse 16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. By the way, that's the word monogenes again. The one of a kind the one and unique relationship that the Son has to the Father is not talking about the Son being produced and having an origin, but it describes this idea of only begotten again describes a relationship, not a beginning, not an origin. Does that make sense? And why, why is this all translated again, begotten? I have no idea. I can't get into the minds and the hearts of the translators of the New King James Bible. But I like what the ESV says, and I like what the uh, Christian Standard Bible says, where that God sent his only unique son. God sent his one and only, referring to his uniqueness, son. So it also... What John is talking about here, referring to what God the Father did in the past, they already had in mind, in the mind of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is actually a very full concept that, that we need to embrace because, it, first of all, it has nothing to do with the origin of Jesus, who is eternal, but it has everything to do, one, with his relationship to the Father, and two, it has everything to do with the plan of God before the beginning of time that Jesus would come and he would die on a cross and he would be put into a grave for three days and that he would resurrect from the dead. This was already in the mind and in the heart of God before you and I ever came around before any of humanity 
ever came around. So the one and only becomes this incredible example of love. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent his son, God the Father sends his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, do we use the word propitiation much today? I'm trying to remember the last time I used it. Probably the last time I spoke on it. Tim doesn't use it, right? I'm okay with that, all right? What is it referring to? We see this also in 1 John chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 2. Um, so again, John is looping back to what he already spoke about. In verse 2 of chapter 2 in 1 John, it says, And he himself, referring to Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours, but also the whole world. I spoke on that. You can listen to that online if you want. This idea of propitiation, is, and it, it has various meanings. And that's where sometimes these words become kind of problematic. But it, it refers to an appeasement that, uh, that was necessitated by sin. An appeasement that was necessitated by sin. Um, in other words, God required a penalty to be paid for our sin. And, and so, um, and it was what Jesus and Jesus could do alone because he is truly man and he is truly God. He is 100% man. He is 100% God. Uh, how does that work? Don't worry, I don't, feel, I don't have an answer to that either. But the Bible declares it. Um, it, it says in first, uh, Hebrews chapter, um, chapter 2, verse 17, that Christ had to be made like his brethren in all things to be able to be merciful. So Christ was truly a man uh, it, so that he could do that high priestly work. The high priestly work, what was the work of the high priest? What, did the high priest, what was his job? What was his, his function? He represented God to the people and he represented the people to God. So he became this intermediary. And of course, that, that was the, the mission, that was the calling uh, of Jesus when he came on earth. That's why the incarnation took place to begin with, which is fascinating to me that, that our, our ransom was paid not in a spiritual sense, but in a true physical sense. I brought this up before. That Jesus comes in the flesh. He could have saved us any way he wanted, couldn't he? Couldn't he? Of course he could have. He could have saved us any way he wanted. He's God. He can do what he wants. But it was in human flesh that he chose to pay our price for us. He chose to be the propitiation. Now, that word propitiation goes back into the Septuagint in the book of Exodus although we won't read it here in, in the book of Exodus in the English um, because it's translated differently. But in Exodus chapter 25, right around verse 17, 
By the way, for just if, I'm sure this doesn't mean much to you, but this word propitiation that we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, is the Greek word halasmos, um, which we will see here in Exodus chapter 25, verse 17, uh, although it's translated very differently. It, and it says, uh, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and two and a half cubits, um, or a cubit and a half its width. Now, what, what are we talking about here? You're familiar with the Ark of the Covenant. All right, it was, it was a box that represented what? The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God, and it was put in the Holy of Holy place uh, in the temple. The Holy of Holy place was a sanctified, holy place in the temple that the high priest could only go how often? Once a year to atone for the sins of the people. And as he went in, he would splatter blood on what is called the mercy seat. Now, um, I don't like, the mercy seat is not a great translation, by the way. But the mercy seat was a lid that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. In other words, the box that was the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat with the two uh, uh, cherubim, uh, that looked toward each other with their wings extended out toward each other. That whole piece was the mercy seat. And, and, and the Lord said that, that he would meet above. In other words, he would dwell above the mercy seat. Kind of like this spiritual essence dwelling above the, the lid of the box. Um, and that's where he would, would meet with man. So it, the mercy seat was the place where the blood was applied. Now, what, what does this have to do with 1 John chapter 4, verse 10? The word mercy seat in the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the same word, halasmus, which is translated propitiation in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And why, why, do I say, why do I say I don't like the word mercy seat? Well, it basically, it's an English concept and a German concept, by the way. This, this idea that Tyndall um, translated this word halasmus, uh, 1530, uh, he, he developed this idea of it being a mercy seat, uh, as did Luther, in uh, uh, when he came around in 1523, actually he was first. He came up with this idea of the lid of the ark being a mercy seat, but it wasn't a place that God sat on. It was the place that the blood was applied. Now I don't know if you've ever looked at the New English translation, the NET, the New English, and I like the New English translation by the way. They've done some really good work with it. They translate mercy seat as the atonement lid. The atone, that, to me, that makes more sense because the, the, it was a lid that was placed on top of the box called the Ark of the Covenant. You all follow me on this? All right? I'm not taking too many turns here yet, am I? Okay. But it was the place where the blood was applied. So when we, when we read this in the book of, 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 of uh, Exodus, and again, Exodus twenty five twenty two says, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the atonement lid, or the mercy seat, or the propitiation place. That would be another way, way to describe this. 
from between the two cherubim uh, on which the Ark of the Testimony. Uh, and, and, and so this was the place where the blood was applied. Now let's take this concept and go back to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the place where the blood was applied for our sins. Now remember, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer up a sacrifice for the sins of the people every year, and the blood was applied, was splattered upon the mercy seat. It was the place where the sacrifice was received. The body of Jesus was the place where the sacrifice for our sins was received. And the book of Hebrews says that, God, that Jesus goes into a holy of holies not made with hands in the heavens, and he offers up his own blood for us once and for all. His body is the atonement lid. His body is the mercy seat. His body is the place where the blood was applied, where the sacrifice was received. That's where God received the blood. That's where he received the sacrifice. And to be able to do that, Jesus had to be the one and only unique Son of the Father. Begotten by God when he was resurrected from the dead. Because what does the resurrection say? What does it declare among other things? Because I think the resurrection speaks a lot of things to us. But one of the things that I think that the resurrection declares very clearly to us is that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was acceptable in God the Father's sight. But it required the one and only unique relationship that God had with God, God the Father had with God the Son for that sacrifice to be acceptable. Because when John the Baptist saw Jesus, John chapter 1, remember what he said when he first saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God that does what? That takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, the Lamb was the animal that was sacrificed and the blood from that Lamb was placed upon the atonement lid or the mercy seat or the place of propitiation. John supernaturally recognizes in Jesus that he will be that place of mercy. He will be that place of atonement. He will be that place whereby our sins will be received because his sacrifice was acceptable. 
So it's pretty, it's really full when you really get, I mean, this is pretty heavy stuff. I know I can tell that some of you are still chewing on this going, what is he really talking about? I'm not really sure. But the idea of the only begotten son points to the necessity of the requirement that was needed by God so that he would have a sacrifice that was acceptable to him. Because what were the two main criteria when an animal was to be offered up as a sacrifice to God? They were to be without blemish and they were to be without spot. They were to be without any kind of blemish any type of sin, any type of uh, thing that they they had done they couldn't have any scars on their legs or they could they couldn't have damaged themselves or they couldn't have been half ate by a wolf so part of their ear is gone or whatever they had to be a whole sacrifice and without spot those inherent things that we drag along with us in other words the original sin concept Jesus had to become human, but he also had to retain his divinity to be that acceptable sacrifice. Not only in the fact that he lived a sinless life, but he was without spot. He was without original sin. So he's the only begotten of the Father, that unique relationship don't let anybody tell you that he was created and he's a junior God. He's not. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among them, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. See, John's tying this right back into his gospel. That's the first chapter. He's tying all this right in what he's already declared. He's just saying it in a different way. Now, one other thing, and you're wondering why I haven't covered it. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot also loves him, who is begotten of him. Remember I told you that in the first verse of chapter 5, that word begotten is the word genea. That word begot, if you have a new, or new King James, is also the same word geneo. They should both be translated born of rather than begotten. And why the translators decided to use two different words for the same Greek word in the same sentence, I have no idea. But what does this mean where Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Well, you know what? We're going to look at that next week. All right? So, but I just, I just feel like there's so much fullness here that we, we couldn't, I didn't want to let this go by. The one and only unique Son of God, who is God the Son, came and gave himself as a propitiation for our sins and thereby demonstrated a love 
for us. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your great love. We thank you, Lord, that you gave yourself as our place of sacrifice, that your sacrifice was acceptable in the sight of the Father. We thank you that he sealed that acceptance of your sacrifice when he rose you from the dead. We also know that Peter tells us that the grave was, it was impossible for the grave to hold you because you are not only the perfect human, but you are fully divine as well. So Lord, we pray that you would just work these ideas and this, the, this, this, this uh, teaching into our lives, into our thoughts, into our understanding of, of the full and true nature of who you are. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to do a work in us. Help us to love those who have been begotten of you. As your word says in 1 John 5 and all over this particular letter, help us to love the brethren, the family of God in the same way that we claim that we love you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit to be able to do that. Because we know that love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Be with us this week. We ask too, Lord, for those who need a healing touch this week, that your spirit would touch their bodies and heal them. Continue to grow us up in our most holy faith for your great name's sake. And help us, Lord, to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and that they would glorify you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. God bless you guys.